Hey Remakers, welcome to the podcast. I'm your host, Lily Spencer, co-director of Australia Remade. And if you have been listening along a bit this season, you may have noticed a bit of a theme around remaking the economy and economic systems change. But there's another big body of work and research that we have been doing here at Australia Remade this year that intersects with this and that I wanna talk to you about today. And that is looking at this notion of how do we set ourselves up to survive and thrive in tumultuous times. I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but it is news to absolutely zero people listening to this right now that we are living through some pretty tumultuous times on the planet, that we have multiple cascading crises and disruptions coming from climate change, a global pandemic, we're seeing conflicts and wars erupting overseas, we're seeing lots of things that have a lot of us feeling kind of alarmed. and. Really, climate is is probably the main one for the focus of what we're talking about here today, but asking, all right, so how can we be proactive? How can we not just be buffeted around from you know disaster to disaster, crisis to crisis, but actually build the infrastructure of strong, resilient communities who are set up to survive and thrive? So with us today to explain this are two of my favorite people and colleagues, Dr. Millie Rooney, my co-director here, and Rachel Hay, who is our research and projects officer and who really led a lot of the um, incredible work of talking to communities about what it means to be cared for through disaster. So this project really came from a partnership with a fantastic organization called Women's Health Goldburn Northeast. They are based in um, regional Victoria and they are a kind of a feminist organization that does advocacy work around gender equality. And they wanted us to look at disaster through a a lens of care. And what does it actually mean to set communities up to care and be cared for well? So that's exactly what we asked them. Um, We sat down in a series of kind of qualitative interviews, focus groups, online surveying, um, asking what does it mean for you to to be cared for through disaster and what sort of support do you and your communities Need And then we layer that in with a lot of um, existing research that, that's out there. So you can find the link to the report in your show notes, but really the conversation today um, will kind of explain where we got to and how we are seeing disaster differently, why we need a new approach to disaster in these times, one that can set us up for success. So without further ado, here are Millie, Rachel, and me talking about this work and what it means for all of us. Well, here I am with all of the people that I've gotten to set sit down with over the course of this year and this season of the podcast. It is delightful to sit down and look at both Millie Rooney and Rachel Hay, the two colleagues of mine who keep this wonderful ship of Australia remade, floating and going strong. And seeing you both today to talk about this research is a real privilege. So welcome both of you to the Remakers podcast. Thanks, Lily. Thanks, Lily. It's so exciting. 
you wait. You're in the hot seat now. Um, no, there won't, there won't be gotcha questions. Uh, I just wanted to start with, so Rach, this is your first time on the podcast. Millie, we haven't had you on the podcast very much this season. So for people who don't know you both, if you could just start with a little bit of an introduction as to kind of who you are and just, you know, quickly how you sort of came to be doing this work, um, that would be wonderful to help us get to know you. Millie, can we start with you, please? Yeah, thanks, Lily. It's so nice to be back. Uh, so I'm Millie. I'm one of the co-directors of Australia Remade. Uh, I'm a social scientist, so I take great pleasure in listening to people's stories and understanding what it means for the world. And, you know, you could say I'm a little bit of a nosy neighbour because I just love it. Um, and I think that question about how I came to be doing this work, when I was a kid, I said, I'm going to be a butterfly dancer on stilts so I can get on the front page of the paper uh, with positive news stories. And so I feel like Australia Remade is me being an adult version of that where I get to talk <laughs> about what we could be um, rather than everything terrible. Oh, I love that. And Rachel, how about you? Yeah, well, no butterfly dancers for me, but <laughs> yeah, so I am the research and projects officer here at Australia Remade now, which is awesome, um, down here in Nipaluna Hobart and kind of been involved in the climate and environment space down here for the last several years now and, yeah, met Millie seven years ago um, at UTAS when I was a sustainability intern and I think that probably started me on this journey. Um and kind of from there, people at Australia Made might have actually seen me before. Millie wrote a story um, back a while ago on the work we did at Fossil Free Utahs and how we use visioning for um, pushing the uni to become carbon neutral and divest from fossil fuels. Um, yeah, so just been kind of working, volunteering, studying in this space for a few years. Um, and now alongside the work here, I do a bit of climate activism with Climate Tasmania. Oh, awesome. And I will link to that article, actually, because that's a great story. Um, so together, we have worked on and worked with Women's Health Global Northeast, a fantastic kind of feminist health advocacy organization based in Northeast Victoria, I believe. Please correct me if I'm wrong. Um, so we've worked with them on this report that we want to talk people, well, this really this work and what it means that we want to talk to people about today. And just to kind of set a little bit of the context in the scene, I just wanted to um, give our listeners a sense of, okay, disaster sounds like a really depressing and awful thing. And why on earth would you want to go away and research that for months at a time? And what we sort of found, I think it's fair to say, is that it was the opposite of depressing. It was actually this really kind of um, hopeful is a word that I think gets bandied around a lot, but it actually was a really hopeful and heartfelt and kind of courageous and inspiring thing to be able to immerse ourselves in for this period of time. Um, and you both really leading on that work, but to paint a picture for people of like, why disaster? Like, why is this something that we want to be talking about? And it's not just that it's an El Nino summer and we're worried about bushfires again. Um, it's because we know that we actually have a really changing context here. So, um, we talk about in the introduction, you know, we've weathered many a storm in our long and ancient history, but in the coming decades, we're expecting conditions that will challenge even the hardiest and most resilient communities to really survive and thrive. So we're already seeing an increase in disaster events, both in their frequency and severity um, caused by, you know, damage to our climate, extreme weather. 
Um, and so we quote the, the intergenerational report from Treasury, climate change is exacerbating the frequency and severity of natural disaster risk from bushfires, flooding, storms, coastal inundation, erosion, and landslip. Looking 40 years into that future, that report is predicting a minimum tripling of federal government spending on disaster relief relative to historical averages, or $130 billion in today's dollars, assuming that global action is only sufficient to limit temperature degrees to three degrees, temperature increases. So it's pretty grim territory. And Millie, we're arguing that we need a different approach to disaster to kind of avoid the dystopian descent into a world that we don't want to live in and actually build communities that we do want to live in and that can be equipped to kind of survive and thrive. Why do we need to rethink right now the way that we prepare for and respond to disaster and how does bringing a care lens, because that's what this report really does, change how we think about those things? I mean, I think you really nailed it in that disruption is here and it's coming and we have had a way of dealing with disasters in the past, but the context has changed. It's different. You know, we're getting fire seasons running together, et cetera. So it's an opportunity is like the first step of that. Um, some of the listeners might remember the work we did on the public good and where we asked people, you know, what do you need for you and your communities? And we heard that people want to care and be cared for. They want to be connected to people and place and they want to contribute. And so we actually wanted to say, well, okay, we know disruption is coming. We know disasters are there. What happens when we overlay this public good lens of care? And, you know, we had a hunch, Rachel might speak more to this, but but we knew that people were experiencing disasters but weren't necessarily feeling cared for. We thought, oh, there's something in here. And then actually one of the amazing women at Women's Health Goblin Northeast, Lauren, she said, you know, when we think about disaster or when we when we do things normally, we think in an efficiency lens. When we think about care, we allow for complexity. And what is climate change if not like complexity on a large scale? So I think that was really the entry point for us of like how do we, we know something has to change and we want it to change in a way that isn't just kind of a terrified response but is a thoughtful, caring human response. I love that. Isn't just a terrified response. I think that's really key. So, Rachel, you spoke to people. Um, you were the lead researcher on this project. You were the person interviewing people who had been on the front lines of, you know, disasters themselves, who had provided relief and support to others in their communities. Just really high level, like, what was that like? Like, just as a human being to kind of sit down with people and be privileged to their stories. Did that feel, um, were you surprised by kind of the themes that emerged? Did it feel just really sad? Did it feel really energizing? Like, what was that like for you personally, just to actually be the lead researcher delving into the kind of stuff that a lot of us just don't even want to think about? You know, we just want to push it away and hope that it doesn't happen to us, that we don't lose our house in a bushfire, that we never have to face the terrors of the floodwaters rising, that kind of thing. Mm, yeah, there was definitely a lot of emotions involved with the project, I think. So, yeah, looking at, you know, starting by looking at that that care research and scholarship was really interesting because it highlights how gendered of a lens it is. And, you know, it's feminist. It focuses on communities and experiences and oft, often women's experiences of you know, um, relationship building and caring. So I think that was the first really interesting um, 
part for me. And then I, you know, went out virtually and talked to communities in that Goulburn Valley and northeast um, Vic region um, through surveys and community um, conversations online and um, interviews. And yeah, it was really interesting to hear people's stories. Um, often it was really harrowing to hear, you know, people fleeing from disaster and the things that they'd lost. And, you know, often I'd be doing it looking out my window at the trees surrounding us and thinking, oh God, like that can happen to my community. It could be us next summer. And in fact, it was us about 12 years ago. We, um, near a place where fires took out an entire community so i was thinking back to that experience as well um but also it was really uplifting so i got to hear about how communities actually care for each other and just step up in disasters in a way which is just beautiful and amazing so you know from moving a tree from the road so someone can get out to just talking to each other and making sure they're okay. Um, it, it ended up being a really hopeful project. It was like hope in action basically. Yeah. Yeah. And that idea that hope comes through action um, is, I know is something that we've, we've talked about and, and written about before. So let's get into just some of those big picture substantive findings and I think we must be masters of alliteration because in our public good work, we managed to narrow it down to the three C's, care, connection, and contribution. And then quite unplanned um, in the Care Through Disaster Project. Um, and this is really your brilliance, right? You really, um, it was like watching a detective in one of those shows and they draw all the lines with the like strings and stuff. And you were like, this relates to people want to be um, seen safe and supported. Could you just talk to us about kind of those three categories and what what you heard in pe from people and and in doing this research yeah so we talked to diverse people and diverse communities but it really felt like everyone was saying the same thing so to care and be cared for through disaster um they needed to be seen safe and supported um so that first one seen uh, by each other as well as institutions so their, their vulnerabilities um, can be noticed and anticipated and their expertise and agency can be respected. Uh, and, yeah, this was something that I heard from a lot of people, you know, they communities really come out and care for each other during disaster. They have such expertise on who is in the community and, um, you know, what, what their needs are and they really wanted this to be respected and to work with the people who were trying to help them in disaster. Uh, that second one, safe. So uh, we heard how people, you know, safety isn't just, but it, this is important, but safety isn't just information um, so people can get to the places that are safe, you know, they can evacuate on time and it's not just a safe place which is available for everyone like an evacuation centre, although that's very important. It's also about prevention, um, you know, allowing people to be safe through preventing climate change fuel disasters and through uh, addressing systemic issues like poverty, inequality um, and just, yeah, making sure that disasters are prevented and that we have you know, adaptation um, in as well. And then that third one, so uh, communities really wanted to be supported uh, to 
prepare, respond and recover from disaster. So, you know, we heard of communities who didn't know what to put in their evacuation kit um, and weren't connected to their community but really wanted to be and they wanted support for that, as well as, uh, you know, communities who were really trying to look after each other during disaster um, but just needed, you know, some more resources, some more money, some more people power to do that. And uh, in terms of that response, you know, communities really just want to be supported as long as they need to be, whether it's mental health services or an art program. Yeah, wow. I mean, that. thank you for giving us the, the nutshell version of what I know to be um, a kind of long and detailed piece of work. I think that's amazing. And, you know, it sounds when you sort of just hear it like just like that, um, you know, it sounds kind of like, oh, well, yeah, OK, we you know, that that sort of makes sense. I mean, if being seen is about knowing your neighbors, knowing who's in your community, knowing who doesn't have a car or who is in a wheelchair or who speaks another language and can translate, you know, services for people who don't have English as their first language or you know, all the way down the line. But you also heard time and again that that's not always happening, that people aren't always feeling safe, seen and supported. And what where are we failing people the most right now, do you think? Or what were the themes that were coming through for you when you were doing this research of where this isn't happening yet in the way that it needs to be? Yeah, it sounds so simple, right? For people to be cared for through disaster, they need to be seen, safe and supported. And, you know, communities have been calling for what this means for years, but people still don't don't feel that. So, um for example, people are left behind during disasters. So uh, we heard of the, the Congolese community um, in Victoria who didn't have translations for um, the COVID-19 isolation requirements, so didn't understand what to do or didn't understand what to do um, if they got sick, um, as well as, you know, there are people in the community who can't stock their pantries for 72 hours in the case of a um, storm or something like that, and that's what they were instructed to do uh, as well as in the cupboard that you can get by without having to go to the shops for at least 72 hours yeah some exactly. can't afford to have that they can't that's or yeah 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 exactly yeah and you know communities have expertise on their local areas so from like how high the flood will go to who needs help but that expertise often isn't drawn on so we heard of uh, how external service providers will come in to try and help Maybe it's the army or someone else, but they really don't take the lead from community members. Um, instead, you know, they're, they're kind of bringing in their own practices, which mightn't be right for the community. And, you know, obviously we're not doing enough to prevent climate change and all the communities that we talked to knew that and they're, they're seeing it, like they're on the front lines. And as well as, you know, they know that we're not doing enough to prevent inequality, there's not enough social housing or healthcare, and that will be worse during a disaster. And they also don't feel particularly supported in a lot of ways by government. Um, there was one example how I think uh, there's a lot of media coverage in the Black Summer bushfires about how fire crews didn't have the masks that they needed. So that's a really simple example of how supporting people with, with resources um, or even, you know, mental health services we heard were being taken away too quickly, uh, that's some really key support that um, communities can be given. 
Yeah, it's it's so harrowing when you think about something as basic as a mask for someone who's trying to fucking push fire. Um, and I'm so glad you brought up COVID-19 because, you know, so far we've been framing this kind of in the climate context and natural disasters. But of course, like COVID touched every Australian and you know, there, there's a range of things that can come in and disrupt our lives, um, not just weather-related um, events. Millie, I know we've been really um, influenced by Rebecca Solnit's work in general because she, she is brilliant and amazing, but there's a particular book that she's written called The Paradise Built in Hell, where she talks about disaster and the paradise that can come in the aftermath of that response, whether it's war or a natural disaster event or another calamity. Could you introduce for people who aren't familiar with that piece of work, kind of what are some of those key ideas that have kind of shaped how we've approached this kind of thinking in this topic? It's so interesting, right, because she's shaped our work, but our work also reinforces what she said. So it feels a bit circular. But you know, one of the, like, really the, the main point of that book is that exactly what you said, that disaster often creates the context for paradise, uh, this sense of paradise. And by that, she's talking about, you know, so many of us have this yearning for community, you know, for care, connection or contribution to use our language. But, you know, and in disaster, the rules kind of, of how, of what you need to worry about in that moment break. So the only important thing is how connected are you to the people around you? Because that's how you'll be safe. And so, you know, you see people gathering to share a cup of tea, or as Rachel said, you know, working together to bring down a tree or move it off the road. And that sense of like purpose and belonging and real focus about what's important. And, it's sort of devastating to think that we that disaster is the portal to that. And I guess this work is really like, whoa, whoa, hang on. <laughs> what if we didn't go through the portal or what if we went through the portal a different way? And, you know, the findings of our work are basically the things that will help us get through disaster, help us prevent disaster, help us survive in the moment and then thrive afterwards are the things that we are looking for in daily life, like community connection and cohesion. And that was, you know, that was a really key part of this work was that people who know their communities and are seen by them are better positioned to go through disaster. And, you know, we saw that in the Lismore floods and, you know, many other examples of communities that are connected can come together much more strongly and and actually safer. Like it's not just about it's nice, it's actually safer if you know your community. So, okay, so we've touched on some of this a little bit, but talk to us about a little bit of that infrastructure of community connection and cohesion, right? Because this is real work. It doesn't just happen by magic, but nor is it, you know, sometimes I think we talk about living in a place that has a good sense of community as though you've stumbled upon something. Yeah. Woo, like, yeah. You know, what makes everybody so nice here? How yeah. people are volunteering. This is amazing. Yeah. And, and I think what we're saying is like, actually, guys, <laughs> there, you know, there are things you can put into the recipe mix that make this cake more likely to, you know, whatever. I'm now mudding the well, metaphor. Look, but yeah, I, talk I, about that a little bit. I love your cake metaphor because I think we often think that community is like, oh, we'll just buy a packet mix of community off the shelf, add water, like, ta-da. A community is hard work. Like, you know that. I know that. Caring for your family is hard work. Volunteering if you're trying to pay your mortgage or pay the rent is hard work. 
So it's about asking, well, what are the conditions that enable us to build those relationships? And I think, again, that's the lens of efficiency and it's a gendered lens. It tends to be efficiency of like how many people that we move in and out of a disaster zone versus what is the context that shapes our response to disaster? Um, and so the infrastructure we might be talking about, so the the, the very immediate pieces are the human relations that we have or the relationships we have to a place. Like, do we know the evacuation centre? Is it safe for us? Is it known? And then stepping back and saying, well, what enables that? So what will free me up to volunteer in the local library or what will enable me to know my neighbours? And I think, you know, the very simple answer at its most basic level that everyone will say is like, I need more time, um, which means, you know, I need the rent to be paid and the, you know, food on the table um, and I need time to engage. And so often we forget that setting up, you know, community festivals or free events at the library or whatever, like that is infrastructure for disaster preparation, response and recovery. And we just so often fail to fund it, you know, or consider it valid work. Right on that, like, did you hear from from groups that were saying, look, we'd love to have a stronger SCS volunteer service, but no one has time or everyone's burnt out. Like, did you hear that time poverty coming through as one of the things that we need to to help fix for communities to really survive and thrive? Mm, I think a good example of that is we talked to um, a local um, SES volunteer um, in Victoria who you know, their the SES was down to three members. They couldn't even attend a car accident anymore. It's just not enough people. And that's because they'd had overlapping disasters. So fires and then the COVID-19 pandemic and people were really just burnt out. And, you know, a lot of people who don't really have time to volunteer um, can't come in and, and fill that gap. So, yeah, I, I think there was there was a real willingness in the, in the community to have more um, structural support so people do have more time to you know go and volunteer in the community and I sorry, so go ahead. let's pick up on that that I think one of the things that we need to be careful of is that there's how are we making time and structures for these formal things like the SES and how are we freeing up time for the informal things like a coffee with your friends or a play date at the park? Like that is also key infrastructure and we often tend to kind of push it aside as like, oh, that's just a nice little thing. Like you go and do your art class or whatever. But that is just as an important piece of infrastructure as being able to staff the SES, as being able to staff the paid fire service. Um, those sorts of things. Okay, so I'm going to press you on this for anyone who's listening and going, what, how? I was having coffee with a friend because I want to feel good about this. Next time I'm in the park having a play date or having coffee with a friend, how am I actually helping to build disaster resilient communities? How is that a piece of disaster infrastructure? I mean, go to Rachel's point, and Rachel, you can back me up here on some of the examples, but Rachel's point about being seen. So who do you need to be seen by? You need to be seen by your community. And being seen doesn't mean someone's like, oh, yeah, I've seen Lily walk down the street before. It's a, oh, yeah, I, I've, you know, Lily comes in and buys a coffee every every week and then we chat a bit about family and, oh, you know, something's going on. Her mum's visiting at the moment and her mum's in a wheelchair. I know your mum's not in a wheelchair, but, you know, like... Uh, oh, actually, so when there's a fire, somebody knows, oh, hang on, Lily's got two kids, her mum's staying in a wheelchair. Like, how are we going to get her out in time so someone will call you and check in? So 
those things mean we don't have to have a like weighty bureaucracy being like, you know, there are vulnerable people's registers, people registers, but it also means that the community can just automatically do that work. Um, so that's like the really basic, simple level. And it's how information gets shared. It's how a sense of vulnerability gets shared. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So in that time thing there, I feel like part of what you're saying is, you know, we need to make it possible and and celebrate and honor the things that people are doing because they enjoy doing them. They get them out in their community, they get them knowing the people that they live in and near um, and knowing the places that they live in, right? And some people have connection to a community that goes back millennia if they're Indigenous or, you know, so there's like there can be really multi-layers to this. And I, I hear an element that's like, how do we structurally free up people's time to do that? stuff to volunteer to have a life outside of working for an income um and and to feel that support because we have other responsibilities we have caring responsibilities for our own families Rachel what are some of the ways that government could lead on this to kind of structurally support people to have more time to be active in their communities and to build the kind of places that we want to live in yeah there's a there's a couple of really good policies that I think government could implement which would really you know change that amount of time that we have so people can get out in the community a bit more and you know talk to their neighbors or or actually go and volunteer at the SES so um things like four-day work week where you know you you were working five days but that's reduced down to four but for the same amount of pay that that gives you a whole extra day so you can use that extra day for things like, you know, going and have a coffee with your friend, which sounds great to me. <laughs> That's what I'm going to do this Friday. Um, That's what everyone is taking from this conversation. Have more coffees with your friend. It's not even a joke. <laughs> <laughs> um, Dr. Millie Rooney, co-director of Australia Rebate. Yeah. I'll write uh, your permission slip. Sorry, Rachel. <laughs> Uh, another great idea that people that um, the government can implement is universal basic income. So, uh, giving people a livable wage, so you know they can survive, they can lead a good life, and they can put that time into other really valuable things. And maybe that's going and volunteering in the community, or maybe it's making amazing art. Um, other great policies like um, uh, full employment with a federal jobs guarantee that ensures that everyone has the money and the work that they need. So, you know, in their days off, they can go and be a part of the community. Yeah. And I think, um, you know, there's an article that we're going to be publishing soon that talks about some of these policies and I'll link to it in the show notes if it's if it's online in time but that idea of a jobs guarantee is really also about looking at what is the good work that needs to be done in our communities and how can we like where are the gaps right because the market often fails to do all of the things that we need or to do them well or sometimes the profit motive is really problematic like in healthcare or education or early childhood so like what are the things that we could, could, could the federal government link up with local communities and community organizations to kind of say, hey, what do we need here? And actually put people to good work, like doing good things that, 
that could yeah benefit all of us. I think that's some really important ideas. Okay, so we've we've talked about this idea of seeing safe supported, what that means, and the, that one of the biggest barriers for people and actually building the paradise that we want now, so that we don't have to wait for the portal of disaster, or and so that we're better prepared for it when it comes through, is really time. What else? Like, what else do we need to be thinking about, kind of into the future? Um, maybe through the care lens, you know, we often think about disaster in terms of a very individual level, like have an evacuation plan, clear your gutters. But I think this work is saying, look, it's more than that, you know, like preparing for disaster, getting through disaster well, recovering from disaster well, it's not just on individuals. Um, I'll let either of you jump in if you want to here. Like, what do you, what else do we need to be doing as a community to rethink disaster through more of a care lens and more of a communal lens? I think there's two interesting things with that. I think that point about in the context of the jobs guarantee stuff, you know, communities are doing so much of the work already. They're just under-resourced and don't have the capacity to do it. So I think there is really that, like, what are we doing to inject communities with the support, money, enthusiasm, permission uh, to actually do what they're already doing, just just to sustain it, really, because we're seeing often in disasters, community comes in, does this huge amount of work, and then they just get really tired. So they're trying to rebuild, manage what's happened, prepare for the next one without that backing. So I think just recognising communities have a lot of the answers. Um, We still need some of that big picture stuff done externally. I think one of the pieces that we need, and we found this in the work, is that, you know, we talk about community cohesion at that really local level of like the coffee that you should have with your friend on Friday. Um, But how are our responses either bringing us together or fragmenting us? I think we sort of fail to think about that sometimes. So insurance is a really great example. Um, You know, in the next six years, I think the Climate Council did some research that says one in 25 houses will be uninsurable. Probably one of those houses will be mine because of where I live. Uh, And that has this massive impact on inequality. You know, Rachel touched on the inequality issue a bit before, but people are going to be moving from places. Some people won't be able to be insured, so they're going to lose out. It's going to exacerbate inequality. Insurance in itself is this like inherently problematic thing when it privatizes risk when we're facing a collective problem of climate change. So I don't have the answer to that, but like what are we doing that is fragmenting us? Um, The other example there in that kind of similar vein is, you know, maybe one of the solutions to this time business is everybody has a day a week dedicated to disaster prep. And maybe that's really broad, like that is the social stuff. It's also the getting your chainsaw license. Um, And, you know, if you're um, in the Australian public service, you do get paid disaster leave. Um, Same with a bunch of quite big, I think, bank and insurance organisations. And that's great. Um, It's often really tied to something very specific like the SES or the Red Cross. So it doesn't quite take into account the like babysitting your neighbor's niece or or whatever. Um, It's also, I think, a little bit worrying when we see again that stuff being privatized. So if you've got a good job that's well paid, that will let you have disaster leave to help your community and recover, you know, you're in a far better position than somebody who, who doesn't 
have access to that leave. And often, I hate to say it, but the corporations offering this leave are the ones investing uh, in fossil fuels. So it's like a little bit like there's again, it's like where are we privatizing and and creating inequality around risk and around disaster and what are our solutions to making sure everyone has the opportunity to recover and to be part of preparation as well. So by those corporations, are you talking about banks? That are um, banks. Um, I'm not going to list them now in case I get them wrong. And you know, excuse yeah, <laughs> um, But banks uh, and insurance companies. And actually, what we're seeing with insurance companies um, is that uh, you know this is where it could go. It's not happening in Australia yet, but in the US, insurance companies are giving you a discount on your insurance if you also sign up to their private firefighting um, offerings. So. You're getting this one, that means we're not having a proper approach to firefighting. And two, it, you know, if you're rich, you can be protected. Obviously, that increases the fragmentation of society, which destroys the ability to be seen, safe and supported. So thinking through like the detail is important and then stepping back and being like, well, hang on, how is this contributing to a context where we have paradise or a context that requires a disaster on a scale of something we can't imagine to get to that paradise. Yeah, absolutely. And just the social fragmentation, like we don't want to live in really unequal fragmented societies. And I think there's new research out now um, by another organization talking about like social fragmentation being at a high in the 16 years they've been studying this. I'll, I'll pop a link in the show notes, but and they're putting it down to things like housing and inequality and people feeling really financially stressed. Rich, I want to talk to you about the mental health because I think um, it sounds obvious that people will experience a trauma like, you know, a bushfire or something, and that there will be an additional need for mental health support. But it also seems like we're maybe thinking about this too narrowly and too short term. Is that right? What did you find in the research? Yeah, in terms of the the mental health support, you know, things like counselling and things like that, often they were they were there and communities really valued them, but they weren't there for long enough. So um, trauma from events like disasters can often take years sometimes to, to kind of manifest. So I heard one example of kids who years after the Black Summer bushfires were just kind of starting to show trauma from that event, but the mental health services were actually being taken away at that point. So I think we need to rethink about disaster as being longer than we initially imagined. And also, you know, it's not just mental health support services like counselling. The arts is really important for people to recover. So, you know, I had so many examples of amazing art programs that it came up in communities after disaster. So um, a blacksmith was constructing a, a, a tree in Cabago and steel drum orchestra in Maryville. And my favourite example, because I'm a knitter, was a woman who was knitting um, some chickens in Strathewan, which was very sweet. Um, and, you know, it's about, you know, creating that and that kind of meditative element of art as well as connecting the community, getting them together. And, you know, that might be a barbecue or it might be knitting chickens, but it's it's really important. <laughs> or so both. They can that. Or they both, can yeah. chickens at a barbecue. Eat your snag while you're knitting a chicken. Sounds great to me. <laughs> yeah, so it's about, you know, they can get together and they talk. They can talk about their experiences they've had, uh, as well as you know um, about rebuilding and the struggles they're having, or 
issues with the insurance companies just and like I think that's how um, rebuilding a community starts. Yeah, so we don't want to further fragment communities in how we respond to a disaster. And some of that is looking at the privatization and the insurance model and our over-reliance on that. Some of that's looking at how do we bring community together in, in healing and, and kind of joyous ways, you know, and I, I did love those examples from the report. Um, as, as we kind of prepare to, to sort of land this plane a little bit and think big picture about, okay, so let's imagine, you know, it's 2030, not that many years into the future really now. And actually um, we have really actually taken on board, you know, the kind of insights and thinking from work like this. And we have really radically changed the way that we think about, you know, building communities that can be seen safe and supported where people are supported to care and connect and contribute. What is different? Like, can you each give me maybe two or three things that would be kind of like signs of, oh, okay, like we, we, we've, we've changed. We've, we've got this, we're, we're doing this in a different way now. What would be different for, for each of you? Um, Rachel, do you want to go first? Yeah, I, I think for me, a major thing that we would see in this 2030 would be actually preventing disasters. So whether that's policies which are adequate for, for climate action, which stop fossil fuel use, um, things like that, so we can prevent disasters, as well as, you know, adapting to the ones that we've we've already locked in from that fossil fuel use. And, you know, addressing other systemic issues like poverty and inequality, um, as well as, you know, giving community the money and the resources and the enabling infrastructure that they need to connect before disasters do strike. Okay, so we've we've decarbonized, we've stopped burning fossil fuels, we're tackling things like inequality, poverty, homelessness a lot more proactively, and we're supporting communities a lot better. Well, you kind of nailed it all there, but Mill, do you have anything to add? Yeah, should we just go home now? Yeah. Um, I'll do a, maybe a more poetic personal version. That, that, um, so 2030, if I'm imagining what my life is like, I'm in a pretty disaster-prone area. Uh, like Rachel, I'm really confident that government, business, communities are doing everything that they can to reduce the risk of disaster. And we might not have it perfectly sorted, but we are all pulling in the same direction. And I feel really safe that we're, you know, we're doing it together. Um, and life will be great because I'll only work three days a week. In the other part of the week, I'm going to be having lots of coffee. Actually, that's work. So maybe I'll work four days a week. Um, I'm going to use the time to get my chainsaw license, um, maybe join the SES because I'm a bit scared of fire, uh, and I'll probably do a lot of drawing. So I'll have cups of tea, nice dinners, do a bit of art, learn to wield the chainsaw. And then when a disaster comes, uh, I will still probably have to work to, you know, pay the bills. But in that moment, I'll be wielding the chainsaw and kind of becoming buffer capacity, you know, extra surge capacity for the local SES or whoever needs that chainsaw skill of mine that I do hope I get. Um, and I won't feel so precious in, in a disaster. So again, we'll feel like, you know, this was going to happen, but it's okay. We've got the padding as a community. I, you know, my husband who has a disability, I know when we go to an evacuation center, it'll be set up to meet his needs. And so 
we will be really part of the fabric of life, you know. It won't be glossy, but we will, you know, be seen safe and supported. So and I think it's possible, don't you, Rachel? Like that's we're not talking anything crazy here. <laughs> oh, look, I love that so much. Now, obviously the report is online and people can can read it. They can read our summary um, and, you know, take that into their workplaces, organizations and communities. But um, in terms of other kind of call to actions for people who are listening to this and like feeling a bit fired up or thinking a bit more deeply, or, you know, and want to want to do more, want to take it further. Any suggestions or recommendations? Rachel? At an individual level, you know, pack your evacuation kit and clean your gutters. But also, <laughs> while you're out there cleaning the gutters, have a chat to your neighbour. Get to know your community. Make it make it fun. Have a street party. Have a lemonade stand, you know. Um, join local groups, whether it's the, the SES or your climate action group. Um, but, you know, recognise that disaster preparation isn't just, you know, preparing for a fire or a flood or the next pandemic, but it's addressing more systemic structural issues. So, you know, write to your MP about causes like um, functioning healthcare systems or climate change, Um, you know, sign petitions, go to rallies, uh, things like that. Those are great. Thank you, Rachel. Millie, anything to add? Look, I think, Rachel, you pretty much covered it. I guess the only thing that I would just emphasise is that, you know, asking the question of how are we investing in community as infrastructure and are we really funding it? Like we glorify community, but we often kind of don't think it's actually that important when it comes down to the budget. So I think, you know, really claim that coffee. I'm going to hammer it home. Claim that coffee as work. It is work. Community cohesion is work. And we need to do that individually. And as Rachel said, at that much bigger. And I think that kind of goes Full circle back to the idea of the gendered lens, that when you look at this through a care lens, you realize that we don't value it because we've historically seen it as something that women just do. Yeah. And therefore, it must not actually require funding support or infrastructure. It's just part of that kind of weird way that women spend time together when they yeah. can. You yeah. know, like, doesn't go up and do that. We don't have to worry about it because there'll be an army of grannies somewhere who will make sure that the knitting gets done and people get fed and somebody knows who has a baby. And But actually, this is real work. And it's actually the heart of what it means to survive and thrive and build that portal to the paradise without waiting for the worst disasters to, to hit and knowing that we have that there for us if they do. Um, look, thank you both so much. You both have been delightful. I will also just flag that in the coming kind of months over summer, we're going to be distilling some of this down into actual like discrete and concrete policy and other recommendations for different groups. So if you are in government, if you're in a community group, um, if you know you might operate at federal or local, if you're just a private citizen or a business like how can you kind of take some of these big ideas and concretize them into something that you can do to be part of this so we will let you know when that is available if you're not already you can follow us on social media we are most active on linkedin and instagram at the moment and that's enough with the plugs thank you both so much for being here today and really helping to bring this topic i think to light into life in a new way that we're not necessarily familiar with hearing about it or thinking about it. I think um, the response has been really well deserved as like very positive from people going, oh, wow, like there's lots of light bulb moments happening as we talk to people and present this work, which I hope for both of you is very, very gratifying. And it's just been a delight to talk to you today. Thanks, Lily. 
Thanks, Lily. It was good to see your podcast magic live. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Thanks, everybody. You might be able to hear the rain falling behind me as I record the final words for this particular episode. Um, I just wanted to say that isn't it wonderful that having coffee with a friend is part of the essential work of building strong and connected and resilient communities who know each other and who can care for each other 365 days a year, not just when disaster strikes. I loved that. I hope that you got a lot out of this conversation. There's so much for each of us really to think about that we can carry forward in our own way and work. So you can find out more about that project through our website, australiaremade.org. Click on care through disaster under projects. A huge thank you to Millie and Rachel for being on the pod today. Next time we'll be back with Jack Manning Bancroft talking about relational economies and his new book, Hoodie Economics. He is a mentor, founder of AIM and indigenous systems thinker. So that's gonna be fascinating. Thanks so much, everybody, for being here, for spreading the word, for sharing this podcast. It means the world to us. We'll see you next time on The Remakers. Lily Spencer and I record my part of these conversations from the beautiful Guppy Guppy country on the Sunshine Coast of Queensland. Just want to honor the incredible elders of these lands and waters and Aboriginal culture. 60,000 years is the oldest continuing civilization on earth. I also want to pay a shout out to our producer, Anna Wilson, to my colleague and sometimes co-host, Dr. Millie Rooney. You can learn more about Australia Remade and everything we're about over on australiaremade.org. And in the meantime, thank you for sharing. Thank you for listening and subscribing, sending us your thoughts. We really appreciate all of the support that you give the podcast. We'll see you next time over on The Remakers. Oh, 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 oh